Well, I'd like to start our time together today drawing your attention to John chapter 6, and I'm going to back into this with a personal story. I grew up in California a very long time ago. This was before computers and the internet and social media. Wow. This was back in the day when people actually read newspapers to get their news and listened to the radio and watched Walter Cronkite tell us the way it really was. This was long before there was any kind of election chaos and lawsuits and chads and hanging chads and counts and recounts. This was before all of that. I was a kid. Although we didn't have election chaos that I ever heard about, we did have something that I heard my parents complain about, particularly my dad. When there was a national election, all the polls closed at eight in every state, which means my dad getting off work at five or later, some of the polls were already closed at eight. He would drive to a poll on, a, on election day and he'd be listening to the news and you could tell by the news that there were a number of states that had already projected a winner. And if these particular states had projected a winner, then by golly, then nationally it seemed like, well, the vote is over. This certain person is going to win. And so while driving to the polls, my dad would get mad because it seemed like his vote or his choice didn't even matter. I remember him complaining to me, what's What's the benefit of even having a choice if your choice doesn't matter anymore? Well, that got me curious as I was looking at the topic of biblical election this week. I decided to look into uh, Merriam-Webster Dictionary to find out how, how does the dictionary define an election? And this was intriguing. The act or process of electing, as in the election of a governor. The fact of being elected, as in he or she was elected to the Senate. The right or power or privilege of making a choice. Very good. They, they assign choice to election. Now, this one was intriguing. This is number four given to us by Webster. Predestination to eternal life. Isn't that fascinating? So there's, there's uh, enough being written about and talked about and discussed in our culture that Webster still keeps this in their dictionary definition, predestination to eternal life, and that's the word election. I looked up some synonyms on election to see if that also added some insight, and in fact it does. Choice, choosing, selection, selecting. Those are very good synonyms for biblical election. Now here's something about, in my years I would say this is something that's interesting about election or choice. We like election when it comes to something that we do. We want to have that choice. It's our right. It's our freedom to choose. But I've noticed that sometimes even Christians don't like election when it comes to something that God does. And it's his choice. When God chooses and God elects and God decides, it can feel to us as if our choice doesn't matter. I think one of the reasons for that is we, we use common experience such as a national election. 
And, and we form our ideas, our concepts of, of election and what it can be, what it ought to be, and we project that onto God. We, we just assume that when we are reading God elects or the elect of God, that somehow our understanding of election ought to be what it is. In reality, I think we begin to understand election in a way that's backwards from the way that Jesus did. In other words, I suppose, I suggest, that sometimes when you think of election, that's not the way Jesus explained it. So we're going to take a look at John chapter 6 and just look at, look at the words of Jesus Christ. And I'll try to, try to add some more detail as we go through this to give some explanation as to what it is that Jesus is saying about election. Fortunately for us, we don't have to guess or wonder or be confused because Jesus has spoken very, cl very clearly on this aspect of God electing or choosing people. My aim today is to show you from the Gospel of John that God has chosen people that he will redeem through Jesus. And election has much to do with God's authority and God's ability to choose. So I begin with the premise that God is absolutely sovereign. Nothing to add to that. God is sovereign. And that means he is sovereign also in salvation. God cannot be overpowered or persuaded or deceived into making a choice in salvation that goes against his free and perfect will. So as we read this section in the Gospel of John, I, I want you to know in advance that there are two themes that are combined, and we'll look at these uh, two themes, but uh, don't get lost on one theme because there are two themes being combined and woven together. Jesus is the bread of life. That's one theme, and we began to see some of that a, a few weeks back when we looked at the early portion of John chapter 6. And we'll re, we will revisit that because it is entwined in the words of Jesus Christ here. So Jesus is the bread of life. That's one theme. And God chooses to draw people to himself through Jesus. That's another theme. And you'll notice again, as we just simply read the words of Jesus Christ in John chapter 6, these two themes are not only present, but they are entwined. And um, at the end of this chapter, interestingly enough, even some disciples leave. In fact, a good number of disciples leave, saying this is a hard teaching. And so recognize it in advance. What we're going to look at sometimes can be viewed as a hard teaching teaching. I'm not going to give it to you in a hard way. I want to give it to you with gentleness, but it is in its nature hard. So we'll look at that. Okay, we're going to start reading the verse 32 and just a little bit to uh, set you up for this. Uh, in John chapter 6, it began with Jesus feeding bread to a multitude. Literally, he just created bread where bread did not exist before, and he fed a multitude of people who could have been in the number of 15,000 or 20,000 or even more than that. And then Jesus uses that as a, uh, uh, an event that illustrates the reality that he is the bread of life. So he's going to continue to talk about bread of life, and we're going to pick that up in verse 32, where they're equating uh, bread and manna in the Old Testament gift of God to uh, the Israelites, for bread from heaven. So here we are, verse 32. Jesus said to them, 
I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 34, Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Well, so far, that seems to go okay. I mean, he's not getting uh, persecuted or uh, accused of, of all manner of things. The, the people do stop short of their understanding of that phrase, I am the bread of life. But at this point in the conversation, they're not offended yet. Let's read on, verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he, he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So there we have the combination of two themes, the bread of life described by Jesus as belief in Jesus leads to eternal life, and that is intertwined with the reality that God has given some people to Jesus to be saved. The means of being saved to eternal life is belief in Jesus Christ. That is very clear. The only offer of salvation through Jesus Christ is the bread of life. He is the only offer that God is making to save people. Jesus is the only one who saves people. The only one to whom God has given souls to be saved. Now, permit me to get a bit technical for just a moment. I'm going to read verse 39. In fact, let's put it up here on the screen. I haven't changed the words, I just spread it out so you can see this more easily. So, verse 39. Uh, this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of them he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. Now, I'm going to give you uh, three words in this sentence that are in three different tenses in the original language. Now, I'll be quick to say, I love the English Bible. Love it. I came to Christ reading the English Bible. There was no one there who explained it to me, or there, I didn't even have an encounter with a missionary or a pastor. When I was coming to Christ, I was reading the Bible. And I made my moment of decision by reading the Bible. That, yeah, there are other aspects, but love the English Bible. Please don't think you are deficient if all you ever read is the English Bible. Love it. Read it more, please. However, there are times when I do look in the uh, original languages and I find nuances, not change of meaning, but there's layers of depth there for us in the original languages, which is why sometimes we just plain need to have the Word of God taught to us so people who read it can help us out in that way. 
So three tenses here help me to understand the, the, uh, the magnitude of what God the Father has done on our behalf in Christ. So first sentence is, uh, this is the will of him who sent me. The word sent is written in the aorist tense. That's fairly close to our, that's very close actually to our past tense. Aorist tense means it happened at a point in time. It's very specific. It means this action happened right there and it's done. You don't have to think about it happening again or sometime in the future. It, it, it happened at a point in time. So this is the will of him who sent me. Jesus is sent by God. He just didn't simply appear on the scene somehow and become popular and had a following for a little while and maybe went rogue. No, he is sent by the Father and he has a mission to accomplish. Now you notice in the last sentence of that, the last phrase of that sentence rather, but raise them up at the last day, that's future tense. So that's referring to something that hasn't happened yet. So we have a point in time Jesus was sent and he's going to raise them up, that's still to occur, that's future tense. Now that, set, that phrase in the middle is, is different. And this is where it gets very interesting. That I shall lose none of them that he has given me, but raise them up. The word given is written in the perfect tense. We don't have that equivalent in English. Perfect tense means past action with present result. Or you could say past action with present impact. God the Father has given souls to Jesus to save. And this is still ongoing. It's still a work that is being accomplished. There is no end date. There really is no, no termination to the perfect tense. It, it, it occurred back then. It is still having an impact today, and it will through the end of time. What the Father has given to Jesus will not be lost. Those who are given to Jesus will be saved. And he will be able to keep those he saved. Now, watch the response of the Jews when they hear all of this. The bread of life was a bit of a stumbling block already. And now Jesus goes into, the Father has chosen to give me souls to save. Watch their response, verse 41. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? So they understood the part that Jesus said, I have been sent. And they recognized this is a claim to deity. And they're thinking, well, wait a minute, we know his parents. He had earthly parents. How can he claim deity here at this point? Jesus is claiming to be the eternal son of God. And they are stuck on this. So they're beginning to understand bread of life means something that they don't want it to mean. And they push back on this. The conflict continues. And just to be clear, um, let me give it to you this way. Liking Jesus is not the same as believing in Jesus. Hearing about Jesus is not the same as believing in Jesus. Knowing facts about Jesus is not the same as believing in Jesus. 
Okay, at this point in time, if Jesus was arrest, uh, interested in a crowd and collecting a whole lot of people, he would have been satisfied with people who liked him. He would have been satisfied with people who heard about him. And he would have been satisfied with people who knew some things about him. But Jesus is not satisfied with that. He wants people to believe in him and to trust him. So let's look at verse 43. Jesus said, stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, this is fascinating because they, they are uh, ostensibly protesting the claim to be bread of life. But when Jesus pushes back against their protest, he doesn't go to the bread of life. He goes to that second theme that I'm telling you is woven in together in here. So they say, bread of life, stop saying that. Stop saying that stuff that God sent you and you are the bread of life. And then when Jesus responds to that, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. He's not changing the subject. The two woven together are the same subject. Now, before we read on and, and move on for, through uh, John chapter 6, let's just stop right here and look at three great promises and make sure we got these before we move on. Here's the first one. The Father has given some people to the Son. It is not stated in those words, but it is clearly implied that the Father does not give all. He gives some people. Some people given by the Father to the Son. Many Christians get stuck right here. I guess we could expand that and just say many, many people get stuck right here. Why not all? Why does the Father not give all? If the Father is making the choice, why doesn't he choose all? You know what? That's a great theological question for reflection at some point in time. And I have some opinions on that. But Jesus doesn't go there in John chapter 6. I am trying to teach John chapter 6. Jesus, Jesus doesn't respond to that or anticipate that type of protest where he, he includes that. What I do see, if you read this correctly, it, uh, God is drawing you to himself through the person of Jesus Christ. If, if you, for instance, even today as a Christian person, and maybe you've walked with the Lord for 10, 20 30 years or more. To this day, if you think of praying, if you, uh, if you acknowledge a blessing from God, if you decide that morning you're going to open up the Bible and read the Word of God, you are deciding those things, you are choosing those things because God is drawing you to Him. Think of a prayer, for instance, like a phone call. What it can feel to us is like, well, we need to talk to God. And so we're going to pick up the phone and, and dial him up, and we're going, to, we're going to pray. We're going to talk to God. But the reality is, God is the one who's placed the call. And we're just simply responding. God draws people to himself. 
We can see that in, in, in the sense that God initiated the act of reconciliation. But God also initiates the relationship, the, the intimacy of the relationship. Every time you sing, every time you pray, every time you talk about the Lord, every time you open the word of God, yes, you want to, but it is in response to the Father has drawn you to that moment. Let's, um, let's turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, just for a moment. That's two books to the right. If you're in John, go past Acts, and you've got Romans. Romans chapter 3. Paul learned this, and, and he got a hold of God draws people to Jesus. God draws people to himself through Jesus, and in fact, um, Jesus is going to say, we're gonna, we're, we're, we'll make sure we see this clearly. Jesus will say no one can come to the Father unless, unless uh, the Father draws him. So John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Paul picked up on this. And even though there's, there's not um, a, a fullness of explanation in John chapter 6, Jesus does allude to God's starting point with people. This is what God has to work with. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The way the Apostle Paul says it is verse 10. He's quoting some Old Testament scripture and um, pointing out the, uh, I guess, the, the disposition of the heart that represents the starting point that God has to work with. So look at verse 10. As it is written... There was no one righteous, not even one. There was no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There was no one who does good, not even one. And it continues on from there, and it really it leads up to all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what God has to work with. People who by nature have no interest in him. So if someone is, is, uh, is in this in a deep way and, and, and by, by nature has no natural interest in God, how is it that they would ever find an interest in God unless he would put that in them in the first place? God draws people to himself. If you are here this morning, God has drawn you here this morning so that you could hear the words of Jesus Christ and respond to him. God draws people to himself. So Paul goes through this litany. There's no one righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned away. Together they've become worthless. No one who does good, not even one. And then we have in verse 21, one of the beautiful buts of scripture. Here we are. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to you to which the law and the prophets testify and at that point in time Paul is able to turn it over to Jesus Christ okay so I've got you in, in uh, Romans let's go back to John chapter 6 and we'll continue our time in John chapter 6 the father has given some people to the son and it's a good thing he does because no one by nature is interested in the father the people that the Father has chosen are given to Jesus. 
Now, maybe you've never thought of this before, but your salvation is a gift to Jesus. You, saved person, you, Christian, you are a gift to Jesus in the eyes of the Father. So all these people that the Father draws to himself through Jesus, he gives to Jesus to save. And God, the Father, views this as his gift to his Son. Amazing. Of all the things that God could have somehow given to Jesus in the universe, what came to his mind was you. I want to give, it's as if the Father said, I want to give you to my son Jesus. The people that the Father chose are given to Jesus. That includes every Christian in this room, every Christian who has ever lived or presently is alive, ever will live, of different ages, different abilities, different inabilities, different accomplishments. Every nation, every tribe, every people group, every language. People from all of that, the Father has given to the Son to save. And the Father views this as his gift to Jesus. Here's a third promise I see in here, just really phrasing the words of Jesus. Jesus will keep those he saves for eternity and he will lose none of them. Verse 37, we read it earlier, I'll read it again. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. You probably have a translation that says I will never cast out or I will not cast out. That's a, a, a bit more literal. Cast out is a, is a good way to look at it. Jesus will never cast out or drive away, if you have an NIV. I happen to be curious about this word, and I, I did find it's used in the book of Acts, chapter 27. This is a situation where Paul is on a ship in the Mediterranean Sea, and it's been tossed around in a storm for some good number of days, and finally they... they uh, the professional sailors who are on this ship uh, view this situation as so dire that they throw the ship's cargo overboard. Now, the word to use in the description of throwing the ship's cargo overboard is cast out. That's what Jesus is saying he will never do to those people that God has given to him to save. He will never cast them out. He will never drive them away. He will never discard them he will never change his mind. He will never say, no thanks, you never were good enough in the first place, particularly after what you've done recently. He will never do that. He will never say that. Jesus will keep every single person that he saves for eternity. And I take it as I read scripture and I look at the sovereignty of God and the fact that Jesus is installed as King of kings and Lord of lords, I take it that it will be easy for Jesus to keep all that he has saved. Now later on in the Gospel of John, we will learn about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but for now, I hope you can see that the Father and Son are working in tandem. They are in this together. 
they're on the same page. They like what the other person is doing. Now here's another layer we, we, can, we can see. The, the value of the Father's gift to Jesus is seen in how Jesus treats the Father's gift. You ever been in a situation where you gave somebody a gift and you found out later that they lost it, broke it, forgot where it was, didn't use it, put it away, locked it up, stored it away, could not recall ever using it? That's not a compliment, is it? Verse 37, I will never cast out, I will never drive away. Verse 39, I shall lose none of all that the Father has given me. Verse 40, I will raise them up at the last day. Jesus sees it as God's will to receive this gift. And Jesus says, it is God, it is God's will that Jesus both saves and that he keeps those he saves. If Jesus does not both save and keep those he saves, he is outside the will of God. Four times in these sentences, just sort of two or three verses, four times Jesus refers to this as the Father's will. He can't go outside the Father's will. If he can't save or if he can't keep those he saves, he is outside the Father's will. Not going to happen. The Father selects, the Son saves. And they do this work in tandem, and they do it securely. Now, Jesus was on the receiving end of election and predestination. We often don't think about that. We, we, we think about God's will, and, and to, to, we warp it a little bit. God's will is being imposed upon me. But, but do you realize Jesus is also on the receiving end of election and predestination? God the Father predestined some number of people to be saved, and God the Father elected Jesus to do the saving. Jesus did not invent or modify this plan. Four times we have it in Scripture. This is my Father's will. Jesus embraced the plan, and he received it uh, as his mission. So with regard to being on the receiving end of God's sovereign plan of predestination, consider this. Jesus is our model. As hard as it is for you to hear this, God is going to choose some, not all. As hard as that is, it was harder for Jesus. It would be as if, as if God says to us, I have a plan to save souls and you are part of that plan. I'm going to save you. And then it's as if God said to Jesus, I have a plan to save souls. You are part of that plan. I am going to send you to the cross to save souls. And yet Jesus embraced that plan willingly and gladly. Well, as the chapter continues, Jesus speaking in terms of uh, bread of life, which is an analogy, um, he will say uh, a phrase, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And at that point, the people 
want to leave. So let's take a look at that. Verse 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And here we go again. I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. And then jump down to verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had, not, had known... Oh, I, actually, I can, I can stop there. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Verse 66, let's do this one, verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Wow. So what's the hard part? If you were to just read this on face value, it seems like the hard part is, well, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. But there were two themes here, clearly, that were interwoven together. You, you just simply could not separate one idea from the other. So the hard part, yeah, it, it might be hearing the figurative as literal. You have to eat my body and drink my blood. That's literally hard to hear. The hard part might also be the offense that we need God to do a work that we cannot do. The hard part might be hearing that we are absolutely helpless. We would never have sought God unless God drew us first. The hard part might be there is no other plan. There are no other options. There's not a door number three. There's not another curtain. There's no other idea. There's just one plan. That might be hard. The father selects, the son saves. The hard part might also be the need for the father to enable people to come to Jesus. All of these ideas crush human pride when it comes to the work of salvation. Theological precision is good. Theological pride is bad. The second half of John chapter 6 has the potential to be divisive in the church today. Hey, I'm on team Jesus. I'm on team Calvin. I'm on team Arminian. Why do we do that? People sometimes choose sides and don't think very highly of people who are on the 
other side or another side. And so I say to you what I say to people all the time. Hold your positions humbly. There's no need to be proud of work that you did not do. Be glad that the work is done. We are humbled by the stunning grace of God that although we had no real interest in him, he had great interest in us. We are grateful that we are considered to be a gift to Jesus Christ. We are motivated to tell other people who need to hear what we already know. Since it's been a few years, I can, I can't really embarrass a person who's already passed away, but so it's been a few years since Barb Harris was with us. And I went and visited her several times near the end. And I remember her saying, um, sharing her burden for her family and for other people to know about Jesus. And she just simply used the phrase, I want other people to know what I know. That's what we're getting out of John chapter 6, hopefully. Not a pride in being chosen, not a pride in being right, but a humility. I want other people to know what I know about Jesus. I recently heard a great statement at the end of a missions conference that I attended, and I think this could be a, a type of summary of John chapter 6. Preach the gospel clearly, and God will redeem those he has chosen. The early church leaders understood this well. And when uh, Luke was writing the book of Acts, and he got to Acts chapter 13, which records the first missionary journey of the early church. Some received the gospel, some responded to Jesus Christ, some did not. And, and he, he wrote ab about their efforts in the first town where they preached the gospel for the first time and saw some people come to Christ. Luke said this, all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. So here we are again, back to some, some conclusion that we've landed on before in the Gospel of John. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That great offer might sound a bit narrow to our culture, but the door is open wide for as many who hear and respond, they can come. Would you pray with me, please? Our great and gracious God, we, we truly are humbled that we did not choose you, but you chose us. We are encouraged and warmed to give consideration to the reality 
that you chose us to be a gift to your son. And we are motivated to tell other people what we know to be true based on the word of God. Keep us humble and dependent upon you. Cause us to be eager to run to you at every turn. Lead us to ways in which we can share the gospel with those around us. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we go into communion, let's see. Is this on now? Yes. Before we go into communion, maybe we can just take a few minutes to kind of reflect on what was shared with us this morning and settle our hearts. We're just going to sing a very short little intro to a song before Carl um, speaks to us on communion. So let's put this slide up. Let's just settle our hearts and sing this together. Just as I am without one plea, but that my blood was Isn't it great to have a place to come to and someone to come to? We get to come to our Lord Jesus Christ. No one less than that. We invite you to a table, and, and it's more than a table. This represents the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We want you to come to him this morning. Just as we've invited you to church, but it's way more than a building. We want you to come to church so that you can be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ with your brothers and your sisters in Christ. I love that phrase that the um, Apostle Peter uh, gave back to uh, Jesus when Jesus asked, do you want to go too? And Peter said, you alone have the words of eternal life. To whom else shall we go? I hope that's your, the disposition in your heart. Where do you go, in other words, when it's hard and heavy? Where do you go when it's, for instance, hard to forgive? Where do you go when you, you can't forget what you have forgiven? Where do you go when you need comfort and guidance and direction and wisdom? Where do you go? Where do you go when you're confused and you just need some help? Where do you go when you wander? 
Where do you go when the cults come knocking and they have another option? Where do you go? I will encourage you this morning to go to Jesus every single time. 